We're continuing today in our sermon series in Genesis, and as we know, Genesis is the foundation of the Bible. It chronicles the creation of mankind and the sin that followed, and then it begins laying the framework for God's redemption of his creation. And this redemption, as God promised, will come through the line of Abraham. And if we've learned anything so far, it's that we should expect the unexpected. His family is messy and sinful and complicated, and sometimes the only word uh, that describes it is bizarre. Nearly every week of this series, I've reminded us of what we're reading because I think it's so important to understand. We are getting a glimpse into God's rescue plan. He is orchestrating a grand plan that we know will reach its high point, its apex at the cross and at the empty tomb. And this is so important because these aren't just random stories. These aren't just isolated events. These aren't just stories recorded to teach a moral or ethical lesson. They are recorded so that we might see the God who rescues, who saves, who delivers, in spite of human beings attempting to ruin things at every turn. Before we get into our text today, there's one cultural element that's important for us to understand if we're going to have any chance at making sense of today's text, and that's the tradition that goes by the name Leveret Marriage. Leveret Marriage is the custom and the practice and sometimes the law where if a married man dies without children, his widow is to marry his brother in order to continue the deceased man's lineage. Leveret marriage was common in the ancient Near East, in the setting for our text today. We see it in Deuteronomy chapter 25 in the Bible as a law for Israel. But it's also found in surrounding cultures. You can see it in Assyrian law in the same, uh, roughly the same time period. You can see it among the Hittites. So this was common in this part of the world at this time and uh, for centuries that would follow. It actually continues to be practiced to this day. There are several people groups, for example, in Africa for whom this is still a required practice, part of their local custom and law. Traditionally, it's been found mainly in cultures where there was a strong pressure to maintain ethnic purity. So in smaller communities, there may not be an eligible husband for a widow. And so to avoid the risk that she'll go outside of that people group looking for a husband, the law makes a provision for that situation in requiring the deceased man's brother to continue the family line. Of course, this is the case in Israel, where generally people were prohibited from marrying outside of their people in order to protect the nation from outside influence and corruption. All right, so we sort of understand the basics of leveret marriage. That's going to be really helpful for us as I read our text for today. I will just mention in passing that this is one of those texts, uh, if you looked ahead at all, that I would rather not preach and that you would rather I not preach, but here we are. I'll be reading from Genesis chapter 38, starting in verse 1, and I would remind you that this is God's word to us. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua, 
He married her and made love to her, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son who is named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kazib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, and so the Lord put him to death. This is the portion of the narrative where Leveret marriage comes in. So the firstborn dies, and it was important for the family line, especially the line of the true firstborn, to continue. And so it was now the second son, Onan's, responsibility to redeem Tamar and to provide her with a son. And what we see happen is that Onan wants to take advantage of Tamar. He wants her physically, but he has no interest in actually giving her a son. Of course, part of the reason is that by providing her with a son, he would be shortchanging himself when it came to receiving his father's inheritance one day. And so he goes on to use Tamar for pleasure, but refuses to give her a son. And in verse 10, we see that he too dies because of this. The Lord puts him to death. And so now we started with three sons of Judah, and now we have one. Judah lost his two eldest sons, and according to the law, he was now supposed to provide his youngest son to Tamar as well. But he's worried that Shelah will die as well, and so he assumes that the problem is with Tamar, not with his wicked sons. And so he sends Tamar back to her family to wait, he says, for for Shelah to come of age. But really, he has no plans of ever allowing a marriage to take place. Now, it's helpful as we jump into the next portion of our text to recognize that we're dealing today in Genesis 38 with at least probably about 20 years of time. So this isn't all happening in months or even years, but decades. So let's pick up the story in verse 13. In verse 13, Tamar, twice widowed, is now living back with her family. And verse 13 tells us, When Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that, though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you? She asked. I will send a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? She asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adolamite in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the man who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Anaim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. 
So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law, I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said, and added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I would not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But then he drew back his hand. His brother came out and she said, so this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out and he was named Zerah. Here ends the reading of God's word. We have in our text today another bizarre encounter in the history of God's people. It's one of the things that I find so convincing as I think about the historical truth and reality of the Bible is the way that it ruins the reputation of essentially every single person that we might be tempted to look at as a hero. If it was a work of fiction, we would expect that the heroes would be cast in at least a little better light. Perhaps not perfect, but certainly not as sinful, selfish, egocentric fools like we see made of the patriarchs. Uh, historical accounts typically tend to glamorize the facts regarding the people we like and to tarnish the reputation of those we don't. But the Bible is, is consistent in its character assassination of, of essentially everyone of significance in the story. And I think the most probable reason for that is that it's simply telling the truth. It's giving us a glimpse into the real lives of real people who are doing what real people do. Well, what I want to do today is shine a light on three things that we encounter in this text that I think are helpful for us. And the first one is this. In the story of Judah and Tamar, we are confronted with the full breadth of human sin. This probably goes without mentioning after we read what we just read, but just even a quick glance at our text makes it so clear how sinful and confused and messy this family is. But I, I do want to run through a little bit of the detail to make sure we feel the full weight of the sin in our story, the full breadth of it. Let's start with Ur, the eldest son. We don't know much about him, right? He's just mentioned very briefly, other than verse 7 tells us that he was wicked in the Lord's sight, and the Lord put him to death. We don't know the nature of his wickedness, but we can assume it was pretty severe because there's a lot of wicked people in the Bible that God allows to live. This sort of confronts us with the reality of God's righteous judgment, his sovereign rule over mankind. He alone has numbered our days. He alone is the true judge. And, and so we arrive at this place in our text 
with Ur being killed and Tamar now a widow. So let's talk for a moment about Judah's second son, Onan. Onan had an obligation under the law. He was responsible to continue his older brother's line by taking Tamar as his wife and giving his brother a son. And and legally, that son would have been seen as Ur's son. Now, there was actually a provision in the law that allowed Onan to refuse this obligation. He didn't have to say yes. It was certainly a thing of shame to refuse it, especially within the family. It's actually kind of amusing. Take some time at some point this week to read Deuteronomy chapter 25. And and Deuteronomy 25 makes a provision for if the brother doesn't want to fulfill his obligation. And basically it consists of the woman having the right to bring the man, the, the, the brother who's refusing in front of the community, literally spitting in his face and stealing one of his shoes. There's a whole other sermon involved there. But read Deuteronomy 25, it's amusing. Uh, But Onan didn't simply refuse his obligation as allowed under the law. He wanted the pleasure associated with the obligation, right? But he didn't want his brother to have a son. So he went through the motions, but he refused to allow Tamar to get pregnant. And the text uses the word whenever. So apparently this happened multiple times, probably consistently for a period of time. He wanted his older brother to be without a descendant so that the blessing and the inheritance would come to him and to his children. He had the opportunity to redeem Tamar, but instead he used her. And so our text simply says, so the Lord put him to death also. But now let's look at Judah's sin. And where do we begin? We can start with the fact that he he married a Canaanite woman. As the story of God's people develops, we'll see very clearly that this is something that God had forbidden. In fact, it's probably the primary reason, as as we get into the, the coming weeks in our text, it's probably the primary reason that God orchestrated the entire Egyptian captivity to keep his people from getting comfortable in Canaan and intermarrying with their pagan neighbors. Judah leaves his brothers and he marries this Canaanite woman and that that almost always in the history of Israel is bad news for Israel. It almost always results in compromise and idolatry. But of course that's not Judah's only sin. That's just sort of scratching the surface. He also refuses, as we know, to give Tamar to his youngest son as required by the law. You see, Judah's eyes are blind to what's going on here. He's like many parents might be who think their children can do no wrong and everything is someone else's fault. So he assumes that Tamar is the problem. And he sends her back to live with her people. He he says it's just until his youngest son is old enough to marry, but we know that he has no intention of ever allowing her to marry Shelah. And so Judah disobeys God on multiple levels here. He he lies to Tamar. He abandons her in her vulnerable condition. This is an important one that we might read over. That One of the recurring themes of both the Old and New Testaments is the call on God's people to care for widows and orphans. The, The book of James calls it true religion. And Judah has no concern for Tamar. He's only concerned about himself. And so he refuses 
to follow God's law in relation to Tamar. He's so afraid of losing his last son. And then, of course, there's verse 16, where Judah, seeing what he thought was a prostitute, hires her services and sleeps with her. Just one cultural note here that might help us a little bit. Temple prostitution was very common in the ancient world and was a part of pagan worship in at least one of the neighboring cultures right in Canaan. So this was very common. What we don't know is if there was a pagan worship element to Judah's decision to hire this prostitute or if it was just merely an act of lust and pleasure. But either way, he's deceived by Tamar and she gets pregnant. But perhaps the greatest sin of Judah in our text is his hypocrisy. When he hears that Tamar has become pregnant through prostitution, what what does he do? As the patriarch of the family that she was married into, Judah orders her burned to death. What's interesting is this is not the typical punishment for this crime. The law would, would, would require stoning, but Judah selects a particularly gruesome, a particularly painful method of execution. We see what comes next, that Judah is caught. He's found out. He's a hypocrite. Because, of course, he's guilty of the very same sin that she is accused of. We see the full breadth of human sin in this story. But the scripture's intent is not just to confront us with the sin of others, but also with our own, with our own propensity to sin. We are fools if we hear this story and we use it as an opportunity to feel better about our own sin. We do this so often, don't we? We hear of the the failure and the messiness and the, the sin of another person and we take some sick pleasure in their sin because it makes us feel better about ourselves. We feel like it justifies our small sins when we see how terribly somebody else has sinned. We've all done this. It's something we've all experienced and we've all been guilty of and it's something we all need to repent of. Any small sin that I commit leaves me every bit as condemned before a perfect and holy God as the big sins that my neighbor commits. And actually what we discover, particularly when we read the Gospels, when we hear right from the mouth of Jesus, is that Jesus is generally more concerned about many of the sins that we call small sins and less concerned about some of the sins that we tend to think of as big sins. And the message, of course, for all of us is that we need to repent and believe the gospel, that he died for all sin. Another part of the breadth of human sin that's so important to see in this text is our tendency to hold others to a different standard when it comes to sin than we do ourselves. Have you noticed that in yourself? We see it in King David, for example. The church, people in the church, have far too frequently been quick to condemn certain people for certain sins while judging ourselves according to an entirely different standard. Creating a list, sort of, of acceptable sins and then a separate list of of the really grievous sins, the the sins that really make God sad or angry. And, And the message of Scripture, the message of our text is that we all need to look within. We need to 
allow God's word to show us our own sin, to be grieved over our own sin and less concerned about the sin of others. The story of Judah and Tamar were confronted with the full breadth of human sin. And that leads right into what we see next. The story of Judah and Tamar were given a a model of repentance. Judah, while ordering the execution of his daughter-in-law, is shown to be the sinner and the hypocrite that he is. His sin is made clear. His eyes are opened. And what is his response? And this is what I want you to make note of today. His response is simply, in verse 26, she is more righteous than I. Confesses his own unrighteousness, his own sin. But of course, repentance isn't simply acknowledging that we're sinners. Repentance isn't just feeling sorrow when we're caught. It's then allowing God to change us, to make us new, to turn us from our sin. And verse 26 says, and he did not sleep with her again. Judah doesn't just confess his sin to sort of assuage his guilt and then go right back to what he was doing. He he turns from his sin. He repents of his sin. This should and must be our response when God shows us our own sin, when God reveals our sin for what it is. May we simply confess our sin and turn from it. A few years ago, there was a pretty prominent pastor with a large following who was found to have engaged in adultery with a member of his congregation. And I still remember reading the statement that he issued when all this was made public. And he sort of took responsibility for it, but then he went on to blame his wife, to make other excuses for what he did. And then after resigning, another church was gracious to him and he was hired on in a non-ministry position to help pay the bills, to give his family a place to sort of land and heal, and and he ended up lying to that pastor and covering up more adultery that had taken place. It was a mess. It was straight out of Genesis. It was a web of lies. It wasn't repentance. Repentance is not making excuses, not throwing others under the bus, not playing the blame game. Repentance is simply confessing our sin without excuse and turning from it and allowing God to continue to turn us and to change us and to lead us into deeper repentance and deeper faith. In the story of Judah and Tamar, we are given a model of repentance, of simply confessing our unrighteousness and turning from our sin. And then third, I want you to see this. In the story of Judah and Tamar, we see the life-changing grace of God. God is a gracious God. His grace is poured out upon us in Jesus Christ who died for all of our sin, who secured salvation for all who will believe. But we discover a couple different aspects of God's grace in our text for today. And I think these are both particularly helpful. The first one is this. We discover that we see this life-changing grace, grace that changes Judah's heart. We don't get the full sense of this in our text for today. We have to look forward to see how this plays out. In in verse 26, we see his repentance, his acknowledgement that Tamar is actually far more righteous than he is. His understanding of his sin 
But this is actually building to something that's coming in a handful of chapters, specifically in Genesis chapter 44. Remember, today's text, if you remember back a couple weeks, today's text is actually sort of an interruption. Remember Joseph, Judah's brother Joseph, has been sold into slavery, sold to Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's guard in Egypt. And we arrive at 38, and it's sort of this interruption. It seems a little bit disconnected. But what we find when we get to Genesis chapter 44 is that today's text, Genesis 38, isn't actually an interruption at all. It's very intentional and very intentionally placed where it's at. And I think there's a couple reasons when we step back and we see how this all plays out in the weeks to come. One reason that I think it's placed right where it's at is because of the contrast that it's going to draw with what we encounter next week in Genesis chapter 39. In our text for today, Judah chooses immorality. He chooses to disobey God. But contrast that with our text for next week, where Joseph actually resists, and in fact runs away from temptation to his own great detriment at tremendous cost to himself. But another reason that this is found in Genesis 44, Joseph's brothers, including Judah, are standing before Joseph in Pharaoh's palace. Joseph has been promoted to a position of power, but he hasn't yet revealed himself to his brothers. Remember, they were driven to Egypt by famine, and Joseph hasn't yet revealed that it's, that it's him. And there's this conversation that takes place in Genesis 44, where Judah essentially offers up his life in exchange for his brother Benjamin's life. Judah offers himself as a slave in order that his brother Benjamin might go free. We see Judah go from this self-serving, self-righteous, chasing pleasure, little regard for others, including his own daughter-in-law, to being willing to lay down his life, to offer his life as, as a slave for his youngest brother, serving as the mediator. He really starts to serve as the leader of the family. He's the one who pulls Joseph aside and says, don't do it this way. Take me instead. Is all of that change a result of our text today, of the repentance and having his eyes open due to his incident with Tamar? We, we, don't, we don't know that. But what we do know is that the scriptures set up this event today as the pivotal moment of change in Judah's life. God's grace can do that. It has the power to change us. It it takes us from lost to found, from dead to alive, from enemy of God to child of God. But there's one other aspect of God's grace that I want us to see today as we close, and it's this. That grace welcomes sinners into the mission of God. This really is the, the story of grace that we find all throughout the Bible. We often Think of God's grace in terms of forgiveness. God's grace to me is that he's forgiven me of my sin, that I narrowly escape the fires of hell, that I slide into heaven by the skin of my teeth. But that's not the extent of God's grace. God's grace is also about us being saved to something, for something, into something. God's grace makes us part of something bigger than ourselves. It makes us part of the church, and part of God's mission. We we see this so clearly when we get to the New Testament. 
Did you know that our friends Judah and Tamar show up again in the New Testament? If we look at Matthew chapter 1, Matthew 1, as you might know, is a, is a long genealogy that leads us from Abraham all the way to Jesus. And one thing that's almost universal when you look at ancient genealogies is that it was very rare for a woman to be mentioned. The genealogy of Jesus actually mentions five women. And can you guess who the very first woman mentioned in Jesus' ancestry is? It's not Sarah. It's not Rebecca. It's not Leah. It's Tamar. You see, those twins who were jostling for first birth, the one who was actually born first was named Perez, and Perez, son of Tamar and Judah, would go on to have a long line of children that would lead us to King David and ultimately to the Messiah, King Jesus. Or as he was also known, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, as we see in Revelation chapter 5. The other women who were mentioned in Jesus' lineage, it's an interesting list. So we have Tamar, the the very young, she was like, Tamar was likely 15 around this time, very, very young. We have Tamar, twice widowed, rejected by those who were supposed to care for her, impregnated by her father-in-law. Who else is on the list? Up next, we have Rahab. Made her living as a prostitute, came to trust in the living God. Next, we have Ruth, the foreigner, the Moabite woman who was a widow, far too young, vulnerable, but was trusting in the one true God. And then we have a woman who's not mentioned by name, but we know who it is. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, she's simply referred to as Uriah's wife. Of course, we know her as Bathsheba, the beautiful woman who David used and impregnated and ordered her husband killed. And then finally, fifth of all, we arrive, you might guess, at Mary, the mother of Jesus, a vulnerable young girl who finds herself pregnant in a culture where she could have been stoned right away, disgraced to her family, but of course highly favored by God. Do you see a trend here? These women that God has woven into his redemptive story were all vulnerable, marginalized, maybe sinful, broken. But when we zoom out of this genealogy in Matthew 1, we we, we, have a, we have sinful, broken person after sinful, broken person. And it, and it really becomes a testament to God's grace. God, in his grace, forgives and redeems sinners and then welcomes them into his mission to forgive and redeem the world. Well, we aren't brought into the lineage of Jesus like Judah and Tamar. We are brought into his family. We are declared to be children of God. We are given gifts by the Holy Spirit. We are given the privilege of telling others where to find true mercy and hope and life in Jesus. The, the story of Judah and Tamar is a, is a story of a broken family, a story of immorality and injustice and neglect and wickedness, but, but it's also a story that brings great consolation, great comfort, great hope for sinners like us. Because if God can love and remain faithful to Judah and Tamar, he will certainly remain faithful to sinners like us. If you don't know 
of this grace of God today. If, if you don't know if you've received God's forgiveness, Scripture tells us that if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. By God's grace, may we be people who live in repentance. And may we see ourselves as people forgiven and redeemed to be part of the mission of God to save, forgive, and redeem the world. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace to messy people, for your faithful love, your unending mercy shown to sinners. God, we don't deserve your love. We don't deserve your grace. We don't deserve your faithfulness. We have sinned against you in so many ways each and every day, in thought, word, and deed. We haven't loved you with our whole hearts. We haven't loved our neighbor as you've commanded us. In fact, we've loved so many other things other than you. Lord, we have all been Judah at times, judging others by a stricter standard, reveling in the sin of others because it makes us feel better about ourselves. God, those words that we heard in our scripture reading from Paul just Resonate in our hearts, O wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? So God, we thank you that you've answered that question, that in Jesus we have rescue from our sin, and so lead us to be quick to repent. And God, we stand in awe of the fact today that not only do you forgive us and and promise new and eternal life, but that you actually make us part of your mission your mission to redeem and rescue others. So Lord, we repent and we ask you to use us for your purposes, for your glory, for your kingdom that others might know and believe. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.